0: Well, good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's Healthline 3, where we like to focus on ways that you can improve your life or maybe the lives of those you care about. And today's featured guest is Dr. Lane Rosen of Willis-Knighton Cancer Center, and we're focusing today on cervical cancer. Over the next half hour, you can get your questions answered by Dr. Rosen. So if you have a question, pick up the phone, give us a call. That number is 318 219 Four five six nine, and we'll be reminding you over the next 30 minutes on how you can do that and what you can do to give the doctor a call. Dr. Rosen, thank you so much for being here with us today. Nate, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. It certainly is a pleasure having you, sir. So let's dive right into it. I mentioned that our topic today is cervical cancer. Let's talk about what that is and, of course, some of, uh, some of the differences that that may have
1: as opposed to other cancers. Absolutely. So cervical cancer is a A a, a disease that is not that common in the United States but tends to happen in areas where there is a lower HPV vaccination rate. Unfortunately, that means Louisiana suffers from a lot of this disease. Cervical cancer is a cancer that starts in the lower portion of the uterus, the part that dilates to let a baby pass out through the vagina when delivering a baby. Mm -hmm. And the cervix can develop a cancer after becoming infected with the HPV virus and that cancer can be quite dangerous when not found at an early stage. Okay,
0: now as we alluded to earlier this isn't a type of cancer that is suffered by millions of women across the nation or millions around the world. This, um, in, in Louisiana how many cases would you say that we've seen throughout the
1: state versus the nation? So Louisiana has about Uh, a couple of hundred cases of cervical cancer a year. Um, Unfortunately, compared to many other states, Louisiana also has the fourth lowest cure rate. Wow. And I think part of that comes from not having enough centers of excellence that treat the disease.
0: Okay, very interesting too. And we're gonna be breaking down some of the treatment options over the next uh, next half hour, but um, let's get into the physiology behind it. What exactly does the cervix um, Where does the
1: cervical cancer actually start? Okay, so cervical cancer begins in the cervix itself. Okay, And that tumor can take 15 to 20 years to grow after an infection from HPV. And once you develop a cancer of the cervix, it tries to spread both to the surrounding tissues, the ligaments that hold the womb in place, and it tries to spread to the lymph nodes, small lymph glands that sit inside the pelvis and abdomen. Mm -hmm. And from there, it tries to spread to other parts of the body.
0: OK, so uh, this is something in we will be dominant the HPV virus. Um, fascinating that there's such a correlation between that. Um, but what is the HPV virus and how does it correlate to cervical cancer? It, does every case start with an HPV virus and does every, I guess anybody, any woman that has the HPV, does it end up being cervical cancer?
1: So that's a great question. So First off, the HPV virus is very common. In fact, most women and many men in the United States who are sexually active, if you've had one or two sexual partners in your life, you've probably been exposed to the HPV virus. Wow. It's unfortunately, there are a few types of the HPV virus that are known to cause cancer. And it's not just cervical cancer, it can cause head and neck cancer, which is becoming much more common, even lung cancer, anal cancers, vaginal cancers, vulvar cancers. But 90% of the infections of an HPV virus just go away on their own over a couple of years. Unfortunately, a few of these viruses linger and can lead to the development of a cancer later.
0: And you gave us a time frame. Are you talking, um, should people even be diagnosed? You said it's so common, um, the HPV virus in itself. Do people need to get tested at some point, or is that something that, I mean, because it's so popular? or you know, so plentiful, I should say, that, that that's something they need to focus on. I mean, especially when you're talking about the correlation with cervical
1: cancer, I'm sure that's scary for a lot of women. It is, and so many women have abnormal pap smears. So typically what will happen is a woman should start having pap smears at around the age of 30, and then they have a special test that can actually look for the HPV virus, and that should happen approximately every five years. The guidelines are different depending on who you quote, but generally speaking, if a woman goes in and has an abnormal pap smear, frequently that comes from the HPV infection. And as I mentioned, usually that may resolve on its own, but sometimes it requires an intervention. And as those women are followed by a gynecologist, a general gynecologist, they can sometimes see a growth that's concerning for a tumor. And a biopsy may then lead to the diagnosis of cervical cancer. And it can happen 15, 20 years after that infection. is long resolved.
0: Okay. So a woman goes in, she gets the test. It turns out she does have HPV. What What would the next step be? Are there preventative measures that she can take so that it doesn't end up getting becoming cervical cancer?
1: So I think the very best way to prevent cervical cancer is to have a, a vaccine that prevents the HPV infection. Unfortunately, in this region, there is a little bit of a of a under usage of that vaccine. But normally there are about four vaccines approved by the World Health Organization. And if a woman is vaccinated appropriately, it can reduce the chances of getting cervical cancer by greater than 95 percent.
0: Wow, that's uh, pretty impressive there. So when it comes back to the timeline, um, when a woman uh, starts developing symptoms or um, I guess, give us the timeline again when they find out about the HPV versus the development of a cervical cancer. How long is that time frame? Are you talking months, years, decades? Years. It's,
1: it's years. Okay. So what will happen, the way we find cervical cancer mm-hmm. is a woman will frequently present to their gynecologist with heavy vaginal bleeding that's occurring, let's say, between menstrual cycles or after menopause, or perhaps they're having some discomfort with intercourse or having a a discharge or maybe an odor that they're unfamiliar with. Frequently, the women I meet with cervical cancer will present with not only vaginal bleeding, but pelvic pain or a low back pain, even pain that feels kind of like like a, a cramping or a discomfort that's unrelieved despite trying numerous medications or visiting numerous emergency rooms and ultimately they'll be seen by a gynecologist who will notice a tumor on the cervix.
0: Okay, A lot of these symptoms it seems like um, I mean obviously problematic too but they compound almost like you're saying uh, a woman may see multiple, multiple things that could lead up to that. You in your profession um, especially at willis Knight Cancer Center, how, what are some things that you immediately start looking for in order for you to start kind of tipping you off that this may be what we're looking for with cervical cancer?
1: So typically, by the time a patient makes it to the cancer center, they've already been diagnosed okay. by their gynecologist. So the next step for us is then to figure out the best way to treat the cervix cancer. And at Willis-Knighton, we're particularly well equipped for that reason. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, Um, one thing we did did not discuss uh, off the top when we were discussing the overview of cervical cancer is um, the ages in which a woman may be more prone to see that? Are we talking um, senior citizens, or is cervical cancer just uh, kind of across the board when it comes to a woman's life?
1: The, the vast majority of the cervical cancer is it takes place in middle-aged women, wow. sometimes younger women. But I have seen women with cervical cancer in their 60s and 70s. I've seen cervical cancer in women in their 20s. Most of the patients we see will be in their 30s or 40s.
0: Okay. Back to the vaccines. I think it's facts, uh, pretty fascinating um, the effectiveness of that. Um, you know, obviously, ninety-five percent. You were saying is um, that's pretty substantial when it comes to that. And is that something that you recommend for every woman to get, or is this just those that maybe um, may tip you off that they have the
1: HPV? That's a great question. Once somebody has been exposed to the HPV virus, the vaccine is ineffective. So what we typically recommend is that you get the vaccine, if you're a boy or a girl, at about 11, 12, or 13 years old. And so your pediatrician will typically recommend vaccination for the HPV virus. Now, over the last several years, we've learned that women and men may benefit from that vaccine even up to the age of 45 because people are still remaining sexually active. However, that should become a discussion with your, with your physician. What I recommend is that children, teens, be vaccinated before any sexual experience so that they can prevent the development of cervical cancer, vaginal, vulvar, head and neck cancer that are caused by the virus right from the start.
0: Because the minute, it seems like the minute you start becoming sexually active, then you just start rolling the dice, and it's just a matter of time, if you are doing that, that you could end up with HPV.
1: It's, it's quite common. The more sexual partners somebody has, the younger they begin sexual activity, the higher the likelihood of developing HPV.
0: Okay, let's dive in more about the, the guidelines for the HPV vaccine. Um, I understand that some of them are new guidelines, as a matter of fact.
1: So that goes back to what I was saying a moment ago, is okay. that I, I believe all teens at about 11 to 13 years old should be vaccinated for HPV. Okay.
0: Uh, Can someone uh, be screened for the HPV infection itself? Talk about that process and you know obviously um, when that should happen. I mean obviously if someone is sexually active you were saying that the, the odds of getting the HPV somewhat go through the roof. So when should you actually be screened for that?
1: Women typically will Will develop, or will be getting Pap smears at around the age of 30, or an HPV screen every five years after that. So, I think the only other time is if a woman were very symptomatic with the descriptions I was I was previously mentioning. If you had you know, terrible pain after intercourse or intra-menstrual cycle bleeding that was very concerning, a discharge or, or bleeding that was excessive, you would go see your gynecologist, which would lead to an examination.
0: Okay, very good. Well, we are speaking this morning with Dr. Rosen of Willis-Knighton Cancer Center. And if you have a question for Dr. Rosen, now's a great time for you to pick up the phone, give us a call, 318-219-4569. Uh, if you're a woman in the Arklatex, you're watching right now, maybe you have some questions about maybe the HPV virus, Or specifically about cervical cancer and um, one thing we hear Dr. Rosen getting back to our line of questioning here is when it comes to cancer genetics seems like it reigns supreme with so with so many things in our overall health whether it's cancer or otherwise do you see that um, if a woman maybe a grandmother or their mother have had cervical cancer that this is something that falls along those genes Typically not. This okay. Is,
1: this is typically not going to be as as associated with your family history as some other cancers wow. may be. Wow.
0: Okay. Interesting. Okay. Um, now uh, we were talking about the ages in which people should get tested, or you know, with HPV or cervical cancer in in general. And talking about um, getting back to cervical cancer itself. What are some, I guess, what are some symptoms that a woman will first start saying? You, you mentioned uh, pain after intercourse, uh, bleeding. What are, what are some of the other things that may be tipping you, tipping a woman off, or specifically you as, their, uh, as someone that's trying to treat it?
1: So, you know, at the expense of being repetitive, yeah. vaginal bleeding is, is a very, very important thing that we look for. And that's unexpected vaginal bleeding. Pelvic pain, low back pain associated with that. uh, A a malodorous discharge. Um, These kind of symptoms are just not typical. And women will present to their OBGYN. And at that point, they typically will undergo one of several types of biopsies. And if that biopsy were to reveal cancer, they'll be referred to an expert in gynecologic oncology or radiation oncology or medical oncology.
0: Dr. Rosen, so many times, when we, when we have issues, they'll pop up, of course. You mentioned the symptoms right there. Um, but talk about the importance of screening and why it is so necessary to catch it at an early stage, uh, especially with something like cervical cancer.
1: I think in the deep south, um, our rates of cervical cancer have been higher than in other parts of the country. Um, I've met uh, physicians from the upper Midwest and California and New York Um, who almost never see cervical cancer anymore. We see quite a bit of it in the state of Louisiana. Um, At Willis-Knighton, in our department, for example, uh, right now, among the patients who receive radiation therapy as a treatment for for cervical cancer, I see one out of every four in the entire state who receive radiation therapy. And for patients who receive surgery for cervical cancer, um, our gynecological oncologist, Dr. Black, sees and operates on about one out of four who require surgery. And that's much higher than both the rest of the state and the rest of the country. Wow.
0: What are some of the risk factors? I mean, ultimately, if a, I'm sure most cancers, if they go untreated can can lead to death. Um, is, that, is that something, I, I guess my question just flat out, if a woman gets cervical cancer, is she going to die from it?
1: Well, that's good news is that we typically Cure most cervical cancers, especially when they're found early. But even when they're locally advanced, if the cancer, for example, has spread to the lymph nodes in the pelvis or the abdomen, or it has spread to the surrounding ligaments, even then, our cure rates are quite high. Um, you know, when found in the very earliest stages, let's say the cancer is confined to the cervix and relatively small. Um, a gynecologic oncologist can do a specialized type of hysterectomy. At our facility, that would be Dr. Destin Black. Mm -hmm. And she is the only gynecologic oncologist in the upper two-thirds of the state of Louisiana. So a number of patients will come to her. And when seen with early stage disease, the cure rates are greater than 90%. Um, if a patient presents with more advanced disease and unfortunately almost two-thirds of patients with cervical cancer will present in a more advanced form and that's one of the reasons why I see so much cervical cancer. In this region, um, for the upper half of the state, we're probably the only department that treats more than two or three cases a year um, and we treat dozens of cases a year uh, meeting a, a new cervical cancer patient probably every week And so, with locally advanced disease, our cure rates are um, still quite high, uh, and and on average about 10% better, according to our state registry, Mm -hmm. which is an organization that keeps up with those rates. Our cure rates are about 10% better than the rest of the state, and I think that comes from experience. So, if treated in an experienced center, there have been studies that show cure rates can be up to 25 percent better. For, for physicians who are experienced in something called brachytherapy that we'll probably discuss later, cure rates can be significantly better if the physicians are experienced in that process. These are all very technique-specific uh, uh, procedures that require a lot of experience to be to become good. So, Luckily, in answer to your question, most women with non-metastatic or spread cancer to other parts of their body are cured. And there are many treatment options even when it has spread.
0: Okay, that's why you guys at Willis-Knighton Cancer Center are the best at what you do in the deep south in Louisiana too. So love to hear that uh, those treatment options are paying off in such great numbers. Let's dive right into that, Dr. Rosen. What Mm -hmm. are some of the treatment options and um, walk us through the timeline and when you will implement those? Very good, so
1: with early stage disease, primarily tumors that are smaller than about an inch and a half, the preferred treatment option will be to do a specialized type of hysterectomy that is typically not performed by a general OBGYN. Now that that surgical procedure, that type of hysterectomy can be quite curative, but in some cases, you may find later a pathologist under a microscope that there were features concerning for that cancer coming back. And in that case the patient may be referred for radiation therapy and I will sometimes ask that a low dose of chemotherapy be given with the radiation. For the other two-thirds of patients with cervical cancer that have pelvic lymph nodes, periaortic and abdominal lymph nodes, or spread of disease, or the tumor is bigger than say an inch and a half, those patients will receive radiation therapy, and that's my area of expertise, is radiation therapy. And I will often, or Dr. Black will often, consult a medical oncologist. Medical oncologists, you've been familiar with, treat, with chemotherapy or hormonal therapy or immunotherapy. The role of chemotherapy in locally advanced cervical cancer is one to sensitize the patient and their cancer to the effects of radiation. Unfortunately, by itself, it doesn't do very much, but a very low dose of chemotherapy added to radiation therapy can make our treatment even more successful, improving our outcomes, which are quite high by, say, another five to 10%. Well, those patients so
0: fortunate to have the amount of options that they do with such amazing results. Willis-Knighton Cancer Center, Dr. Rosen, answering your questions now. And I think we have uh, a caller on the line right now. Karen, what's your question for Dr. Yeah. Rosen?
2: Okay, years ago I had the HPV, and then years after that I got cancer. Had a total hysterectomy and they kept putting me on estrogen, and it would come back. They wasn't giving me enough time. So I finally just quit taking estrogen, and here about a year or so ago, I was experiencing some trouble again. The gynecologist put me on estrogen. I started the estrogen, and I started feeling like the cancer was coming back. Went back to the gynecologist, they said they did find some cancer cells but to wait a year and come back for a, another, up, uh, another exam and I wasn't happy with that I'm getting more back pain and uh, pelvic pain and really don't know what to do don't know I asked them should I stop the estrogen, and they said
1: no. So, so, you know, it's it's very difficult to 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 figure out specifically for you what this condition may be. Also, as to whether it's a, a, a uterine cancer at the top of the womb, or it could be a cervical cancer, uh, which the uterine cancers can sometimes be a little I don't more.
2: Have- how I had a total hysterectomy
1: yes ma'am I so I I, I would offer you uh, to contact our office uh, perhaps uh, after this show and we can maybe get you in to see somebody to evaluate that a little bit more carefully
2: I'm only on Medicaid
1: that's okay ma'am uh, we we uh, a good portion of my patients with cervical cancer are, are Medicaid patients in fact you know uh, we at Willis-Knighton, and we treat, Um, easily half of all the patients with Medicaid in North Louisiana. Well that's a relief
2: to know.
1: Yes ma'am. Karen thank you.
2: What is the name of your office?
1: Just call the Willis-Knighton Cancer Center. Do you happen to know the number Dr. Rosen? Uh, You can can also call the radiation oncology department directly at 318-212 4639. That's three one eight two one two 4639.
0: All right, Karen. Well, thank you so much for your what call, is, Karen. What is that last number again? 4639. And is the Willis Knighton Cancer Center, Ray- Karen? Ray- yes, doc- okay, that's you. Dr. Rosen. Yes, ma'am. Well, thank you, Karen. Again, um, if you have a question for Dr. Rosen, we still have about seven minutes left to field your calls. That number is 318 219. PICK UP THE PHONE, GIVE US A CALL AGAIN, ABOUT SEVEN MINUTES MORE TO GO, AND um, YOU KNOW, ONE THING FOR SOME OF THE PEOPLE JUST TUNING IN, OF COURSE, THE TOPIC TODAY IS CERVICAL CANCER. KAREN WAS JUST MENTIONING um, ESTROGEN. CAN YOU TALK ABOUT WHAT THAT DOES FOR A, pa- for a PATIENT IN uh, SOMEONE LIKE KAREN'S SITUATION, HOW THAT HELPS VERSUS HER TAKING OFF AND HOW IT COULD HURT?
1: So honestly, I don't really know that estrogen plays a major role in the in, in the in the in the discussion of cervical cancer okay. per se. So there may
0: be there may be a bit of a red herring. There. Okay, no problem. That's fine. All right, we got already our next uh, caller on the line, Candice. Thanks a lot for calling in. What's your question for Doctor Rosen? Yes, I
2: was diagnosed with HP. and back to the doctor several times and they
1: told me I had
0: cancer cells. I think we're losing you, Candice.
1: Sorry?
0: Uh, I'm sorry. We were having a little hard time hearing you there, Candice. Your phone was breaking up. You were saying that you uh, you, the doctor did tell you that you had cancer cells after uh, being told that you do have the HPV virus?
2: Yes. And uh, they had to do cryosurgery on me. And I was just wondering where I could go from here um, because once they told me that I had that they had to do the cryosurgery they removed 75% of my cervix so well I still got pregnant after that and I had kids after that
1: yes ma'am that's but that's not uncommon my question,
2: okay okay well my question is once once you have the HP virus you can't get the vaccine
1: correct the, you can still get the vaccine to prevent a new HPV invec- infection, but it is not effective for treating somebody who already has been, or not effective in preventing HPV in someone who's already been exposed. I will say um, the situation described there is often precancerous. Mm-hmm. And precancerous cervical cancer can be treated by a number of minor surgical procedures, cervical colonizations, freezing the cervix, but they're not necessarily true cancer, which we're focusing on today.
0: Okay, great. Well, Candace, thank you so much for your call. We do appreciate it. Uh, Dr. Rosen, one thing you touched on earlier is, uh, I hope I'm saying this right, brachytherapy. Tell us more about that and how that's helping some patients.
1: Absolutely. So, in order to understand brachytherapy, first right. we have to describe the treatment for cervical cancer. So. We treat cervical cancer with radiation Monday to Friday over a series of about six weeks. We deliver radiation every day for about 15 minutes Monday to Friday. A patient gets chemotherapy once per week, usually with my colleague Dr. Chip McDonald who's a medical oncologist. So that chemotherapy is given through the whole day. The x-ray therapy or radiation therapy is given for about 15 minutes Monday to Friday, six weeks and during that time the cancer will shrink. Afterwards though, in order to avoid giving too much dose to the bladder or the bowel that sits near the cervix, obviously it sits right behind the bladder in front of the rectum, we will switch to a technique that allows us to put the radiation directly inside of a tumor. That's called close therapy or brachy therapy, B-R-A-C-H-Y. At Willis-Knighton, we were one of the four sites that the American Brachytherapy Society, it's a huge organization that almost all radiation oncologists are a member of, they used to have a training program called the scholarship program and when that program was in its last couple of years, other radiation oncologists like myself would travel to Harvard or UCLA or Salt Lake City or Willis-Knighton where we would train them how to do brachytherapy they would come to our department and see as much as 30 cases in a week, which is honestly more than I saw my entire residency training program in four years. So, brachytherapy is a very specialized technique. In fact, the American Brachytherapy Society and ASTRO, the American Society of Therapeutic Radiation Oncology, that's our national organization, they have a booklet on cervical cancer that is given to patients and inside that booklet that talks about cervical cancer, the pictures in that guideline are from our department, Adwell's Knighton. So every department in the country gives that pamphlet out. So we do hundreds of brachytherapy procedures a year, and it is done well because we have excellent dosimetrists who help us calculate dose, physicists who help us generate the plan and make sure it's done properly, therapists who help us deliver it, physician assistants who are very experienced, and nurses who are very experienced who work with me to do the procedure. And one of the things that makes brachytherapy unique at our facility is we have a dedicated CAT scan just for brachytherapy. So we're able to position a patient very appropriately. We do that as an outpatient without anesthesia. And patients are referred to our department from all over the state, primarily, you know, Lafayette, Lake Charles, Alexandria, Monroe, um, East Texas, Southern Missis- uh, Southern Arkansas, Western Mississippi.
0: Wow! I just imagine um, a dartboard and being able to throw that dart and hit the bullseye every single time when you're talking about putting that radiation directly uh, into that uh, into that tumor there well that that is certainly very fascinating um now dr rosen we have just a uh, about a minute and a half left too i know some women are watching at home right now thinking that you know they they have a question they haven't been able to pick up the phone uh to give you a call uh we've touched on so much over the last half hour but are you taking patients right now and um how how can women reach out to possibly get some of
1: these questions answered from
0: you and your team
1: absolutely so uh, yes we we do offer second opinions um through the medical and radiation and gynecologic oncology departments. But typically, if you've been diagnosed with cervical cancer, um, usually you'll be referred to a gynecologic oncologist at our, our cancer center, but if a person needs to reach us, there are uh, general cancer center telephone numbers. You just look up willis and Cancer Center, either on the internet or uh, in your telephone book and they can get you to one of the radiation or gynecologic oncologists who can help you.
0: Fantastic. And uh, I guess my last question, are you are you currently taking patients or do the women um, that you see, are they typically referred to by their gynecologist? Uh,
1: no, we, we accept patients, uh, we always accept patients. Um, we follow our patients for about five years. And as part of that process, we'll do uh, a PET CT scan or an MRI, both of which we actually have in the departments. We also have a dedicated MRI and and, and also another diagnostic CAT scan for that purpose. So a lot of the workup will be done by us once the patient has been diagnosed.
0: Great. Well, Dr. Lane Rosen of Willis-Knighton Cancer Center. Doctor, thank you so much for your time and your expertise. That was today's Healthline 3.